And welcome to the game of the year, the one we've all been waiting for. There's a capacity crowd here, the conditions are absolutely perfect, with an atmosphere that's really electric. Now the band's just leaving the pitch, and we're waiting for it. Yes, I, I hear I can see them. Yes, it's the team. Here they come. Just listen to that roar. You are listening to Four at the Back with Dan and Ken. Hi, everybody. This is Ken Tomash. You know, try as we might, we can't always bring you a brand new edition of Ford the Back every week. This is one of those weeks, but we will bring you our entire interview with Shep Messing, former All-Star NASL goalkeeper and now broadcaster for Madison Square Garden Network. Enjoy. Our guest this week is Shep Messing, longtime soccer analyst and former star goalkeeper for the Oakland Stompers, the Boston Minutemen, the Rochester Lancers, and a couple other clubs that I can't recall at the moment. You may hear him on uh, New York Red Bulls telecast on MSG Network as well as on MLS Extra Time on MLSNet.com. Shep, how are you? Hey, Ken. Great to hear you. And only you would open up with, uh, I mean, Oakland Stompers. You just, I just had a flashback. Boston Minutemen, Rochester Lancers. Good to hear from you, pal. Talk about uh, bad flashbacks. You called the the Red Bulls' loss to D.C. United back on April 26th possibly the worst loss in franchise history. And it's not like there's not a lot of losses to choose from with that franchise. You look back on that. Do you stand by that? And do you think that's kind of typical of how this team has gone this year? You know, I said that, Ken, at the time. And then, you, you know, as a broadcaster, you always think, well, you know, should I have said that? They've had so many painful terrible losses in their history no matter what their name is metro stars or red bull but but yeah i'm i'm gonna live by that one because that that's a game at home that you have you control your own destiny all you have to do is close out a couple of minutes and and then to give up the equalizer and then give up a goal and lose that's catastrophic but that's been the story of this franchise in general and i think red bull in particular especially this season how much patience is management going to have with Juan Carlos Osorio, given that they had so little patience with Bruce Arena, do you think? This is like Ken trying to turn around, uh, you know, the Titanic. You can't do it in one quick motion, and, and, and they've tried to do it, uh, you know, with a knee-jerk reaction. They got rid of Bob Bradley, who has gone on to do a pretty good job. Uh, they got rid of Bruce Arena. It really didn't give him any any chance to turn the franchise around. So I, I don't have any inside information as to whether or not, you know, Red Bull ownership is getting impatient. I, I would say this. I, I, Juan Carlos Osorio, for me, is a very intelligent, very hardworking, very articulate coach. He, he's got two issues this year. And, 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 and let me preface it by saying, despite the catastrophic, you know, end of the first half, end of the game, giveaway goals, giveaway games, Aside from the opening game against Seattle this year, the team has actually played pretty hard, pretty consistently for 90 minutes. So to answer your question, I'm not for a knee-jerk reaction. I I think he's got some time. They're kind of in a holding pattern until their new stadium opens next year in Harrison, New Jersey. I I think even if he loses to Colorado this coming weekend, I I don't think they're going to pull the plug on Juan Carlos Osorio. Now, having said all of that, you've been in the business. At the end of the day, you have to win games. Uh, the players I know in the locker room really stand by him. Uh, their designated player in particular, uh, Juan Pablo Angel, he loves Osario. So, you know, he, he's got a leash. Uh, 
I don't think it's a short leash, but he's got to start producing soon. Well, you mentioned Angel. I love the guy. I think he's one of the very best players in the league. I love watching him play. But is there anybody else on that roster that you can point to and say, okay, we can keep this guy, we can build around this guy or these guys? Are there anybody, any players there that are part of the long-term solution? I think when you look through any roster in Major League Soccer, you have to establish your core players, and then you're always going to tweak it. You're going to find your role players. Angel, for me, also is one of the best strikers ever to have played in MLS. Uh, he's injured, by the way, and he's not telling anybody. To answer your question, you know, the young Senegalese, Gambian uh, second striker, uh, Mac Kanji, he really looks like a good young player. They have some some players at the back who have done well. Uh, Kevin Goldthwait has really established himself as a, as a good central defender. Stamler as a defensive midfielder. You, you know, to me, they've got some players four or five you could build around. They also have six or seven you need to trade for a you know a bag of soccer balls. No names involved there, huh? Yeah, I don't have a problem with names. You know me, Ken. Yeah. Uh, look, coaches, coaches in this league, MLS in particular, you can ill afford to give guaranteed contracts to bad players. So, you know, a second second division Argentine player who was kicking around in Greece, Petrovalo, he's on a guaranteed contract. He's making two hundred thousand uh, dollars. Useless to the team. Uh, Dane Richards played a couple of good games last year against. Houston, for me, this is a player who doesn't see beyond his own feet. I mean, he, he has speed. He could beat a, beat a player, you know, running at him with the ball at his feet. But, you know, for me, I look, I look at high soccer IQ, and I don't think Dane Richards has it. Oduro, who was a mistake, well, they got rid of him. Uh, you know, so, so he's gone for a couple of future draft picks. Let me think who else. Kano Smith. Kano Smith, for me, is one of the worst players I've ever seen in Major League Soccer, and he's making $150,000 a year. So so back to Osario, you know, if you're paying Kano Smith 150000 and you're paying Petrovalo 200000 they contribute zero to the team. Uh, those are players, to me, you have to either eat the contract, you know, suck it up and get rid of them or trade them for anything you can get. I loved the book you wrote in the okay. 70s, Education, and I, was that mostly you? Was that the ghostwriter? All these great stories you had, I don't know if the ghostwriter lived through them, but I was just blown away by your perspective of pre-Pele NASL and, on a much more tragic note, the Munich Olympics, and all this stuff you've gone through, and now you've, you're sort of this grand old man, like a sort of kibitzing and uh, yeah, taking shots at people like Landon Donovan. What What is that like? What, did you see yourself in this position as this uh, more or less pillar of the community back when you were, uh, you were being shopped around in Oakland and God knows where else? Uh, wow, what a, that that's a multifaceted question. So let yeah, me it first... was a, I, yes, it was a multifaceted reaction I had when I when I read that book, which well, I'll, never see, that, I'll never see. I'll never see it again. I lent it out. Don't lend out Shep's book. Just keep... I will send you. You, you <laughs> Ken will send you a address. I'll I'll buy one on eBay and send one to you. So <laughs> let me give you the, let me give you the 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 scoop first. So and and then I'll circle back to the book because. 
a couple of years ago, so, uh, point of the story is somebody had the same opinion as you, Dan. So a couple of years ago, I get a call from a guy in L.A. who claims to be a, a, a movie and entertainment lawyer. Uh, I, I, I blow it off because I don't believe anybody. I give it to my son. My son calls the guy back, and he says, uh, you know, who are you, any references, and who's your client? He said, my client is a guy who did uh, Mystic River, Brian Helgeland, uh, a producer, director, screenwriter. I'm not a big movie buff. Uh, but my son looks up Brian Helgeland and, and finds out, yeah, he's the guy. He, you know, Sean Penn and Mystic River and a bunch of uh, L.A. Confidential so Brian is the greatest guy in the world. It, it, it evolves into a series of conversations. I meet him in L.A. I meet him in New York. He had lived in Europe, and he got caught up during some European championship, thought soccer was the coolest thing in the world, came back to L.A. and knew nothing about soccer. This was three years ago, and, and, and did a Google search, found my book, read the book, and, and said what you said. This is, the, this is, from a movie perspective, it's got everything. So he, he bought the rights, he, he developed the screenplay, sold it to Sony, so maybe we'll see it in the movies. Now to answer your question, <laughs> listen, I, I've just always been pretty free-spirited, pretty independent, grew up in a family with a, a mom was, you know, a feminist in the, in the 50s and 60s and the first professor ever to teach sex education and a father who was a lawyer, uh, you know, fighting rebel causes all, all over, one of five children. So back to your question, when this Pele and Cosmos and 77 year happened, I just started keeping a diary and writing notes, just thoughts in my head. And, and uh, I, I guess, like, I, I don't even remember, but Dave Hershey, who who was the ghostwriter, uh, ended up publishing an, an article, you know, like a, like a one chapter for a magazine, and then wanted to do a book. And, and so what, to answer your question again without rambling, I wrote everything, and, and Dave edited it. I, I didn't want anybody, I didn't talk into a, into a microphone, a recorder, I didn't want anybody else writing this, but Dave, I, I consider a co-writer. So I would write a chapter. He'd go, go back, go back. Well, what about high school? Write a chapter on high school. So I'd write a chapter. <laughs> and that's how the thing evolved. Uh, did I look forward, you know, 25, 30 years later? Um, hey, listen, when I closed nude in the magazine, I didn't think I'd have, you know, teenage children who would <laughs> do a Google search. So, you, you, you know, there's, you just kind of attack life as it comes every day. Um, it, and here I am today. I don't know what I am today. But I wake up the same every day and, uh, you know, sort of shoot from the hip and fight for what I, I, I think is right, whether it's on TV, which is la-la land, or in real life. And how people perceive it, uh, you know, that, that's secondary to me. Well, it was, uh, well, what you are right now is the only reason to watch Red Bulls games at the, at the moment. <laughs> What's it like seeing a New York team seemingly cursed? That's got to be incredibly unusual from any yeah. sports perspective. Hey, listen, I, I'm not trying to, you know, use crazy analogies like turning the Titanic around. And it, 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 it is 
boy, jinxed is a tough word for an ex-professional athlete. You know what I mean? But they are cursed. I mean, they just are. They find every single way to lose. Aside from the Seattle game, you know, they're really playing hard for 90 minutes. They just suck when it counts. I mean, I, yeah. I, and so who do you, you know, is that the coach? Is it the manager? Well, they've had Bradley and Arena and now Osorio. And, but to give up such, to, to make lapses at the wrong time in a game is a jinx. I, I, I don't talk about myself, but I will come back to myself. I was not the greatest athlete in the world. I, I, I really wasn't. I think there were a hundred guys as good as me. I was the right guy at the right time in the right spot. But contrary to what we're talking about, the Red Bulls, I had a crazy ability when it mattered to make the big save or, or stop a penalty kick. So, it, it, you know, it's the inverse of what the Red Bulls are doing. I made my career and my name and, and whatever I achieved out of soccer by consistently coming through when it counted. I played in five championship games, and I won five championships. I, you know, I'd win shootouts. I'd stop a penalty kick. I'm out, I'm out of suck for 80 minutes, but the ability, <laughs> the ability to make the play when it counts for me you know, really makes the difference. Uh, and, and, and the Red Bulls, they're, they're the worst. <laughs> you know, the D.C. United game, the Colorado oh. game last year, uh, they're just time and time again, you just, I don't know what that is. You know, a lack of character, a lack of leadership, a lack of... But my theory on sports, not theory, as an ex-player, and I believe this for every athlete in every sport at every level... You have three things that go through your mind before you go on the field. I did, Pele did, Giorgio did, the worst player in the world did. N- number one, don't let me be the goat. Don't let me make a mistake, <laughs> right? That, and I'm talking every sport. That's how I always felt coming out onto the field. Don't let me let one through my legs. We lose one nothing. I'm the idiot. Number two, second mindset, let me do my job. You know, let, let me make every save I'm supposed to make. Let me keep it keep it clean, simple, do my job. Just a workmanlike effort. And the third mindset is let me let me win this game. Let, let me take this team on my shoulders. You know, Pele, create a goal, make a goal, score a goal, make a stop a penalty shot. Let me not be the hero, but those are the three mindsets every athlete has when they come on the field. And, and for this Red Bull team, <laughs> just every one of them finds a way to be the goat, to give the game away, to blow it. To, so it, 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 it's really, uh, it is mind-blowing. Do I believe in jinxes? No. When I played, I believe ch- players won championships. Now that I'm a little older and wiser, I, I really believe it's organizations over the years. You know, how many coaches have the Pittsburgh Steelers had, or, or the New England Patriots, or, or the Celtic dynasty with Auerbach? So the organization here sucks. It, it always has. <laughs> and, 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 and until they get that right, whether it's a committed owner with a vision, the ability to put a guy in charge who knows what he's doing in the front office, his ability to hire a coach, I, I, I think until you get that right, you're not going to just uh, you know, strike lightning and, and win. I, I think they've got to fix that first. Well, you're not afraid of getting fired off this podcast. Uh, I respect that. Um, no, I, you know what? I, I told my kids, do do what you love and, and, and do what you think is right. And uh, you don't, don't worry about a paycheck. I mean, so, 
No, do I worry about getting fired? No. I'll go fishing tomorrow. I'll, I'll find something else to do. Well, you're a New York guy way back. You know the lay of the land. Are they ever going to be relevant, even when they get the new stadium next year? Is this really a team and a club and an organization that's going to be truly relevant among New York soccer fans? That's a great question, and you you use the right word because they're irrelevant right now. That's the problem. They're really irrelevant in what could be the you know one of the top soccer markets in the country. I'm not a big believer. Uh, look, I love the, the the new stadiums all across the country, but I'm not a big believer that you build Harrison and all of a sudden you know 22,000 fans are going to show up. It's just not going to happen. So. Do I have hope for the franchise? Absolutely. You know, I did play in, in, in New Jersey in that vicinity, uh, many, many years ago, and I, I know what kind of rabid fan base is out there. They're just waiting for a product. Right now, they're, they're not buying the product, but I, I think like every other market, every other professional sport, uh, you've got to win. You, you really have to win at some point. Uh, otherwise, as you said, they're irrelevant. Stick with us through the break. We'll be back with more with Chef Messing. We'll take a walk down memory lane, as it were. It's all coming up right after this. You're listening to Four at the Back. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. You are listening to Four at the Back with Dan and Ken. Shep Messing's our guest. He played with a little club out of New York you may have heard of back in the day. And Shep, this is the 25th anniversary of the final season of the North American Soccer League. We're going to be talking about that a lot this summer. And I'm interested in your take on this as a former Cosmo player because there are a lot of fans out there, many of whom could never have seen the Cosmos play, who are intent that this name has to be brought back either for the current MLS team in New York or for one in New York City. What's your take on that? Can an MLS team ever leave up to that legacy that you were a part of? Can I, I get asked this question, and I hear the buzz, and I and, and and I listen to talk radio, and I read big soccer, and you know I, I speak to fans all across the country, and I, I travel a lot around the world in Europe and South America. So back to the point, the Cosmos. I, I have to preface it with a little bit of an overview, and then I'll give you my answer. You know, Ken, in every sport, in every city, in every country, all around the world. A team, you know, a franchise has the unique ability at a time just to really captivate a market. Uh, just, just get into the psyche of the market and you catch fire and it's the greatest thing in the world. And that's what happened in the, in the late 70s uh, with the Cosmos. And it, it just wasn't the Cosmos, it was the Times, it was Studio 54 and the Rock Stars and the Blackout and the Son of Sam and and New York City and, and Pele and Beckenbauer and Canalia and it just it just was a meteorite that took off. So that's something for me that look, what I like to see a Cosmo team, I speak to players all over the world, you know, and they say if I, if they once played for Barcelona, you know, that's that's their team, Barcelona. Uh, or Manchester United, or Juventus, or AC Milan. So would I love to see a Cosmos? Absolutely. Would I like to see it 
now in Major League Soccer? Absolutely not. I, I, I don't want to see Kano Smith wearing a Cosmo uh, badge on his on his shirt. I don't think you can replicate, uh, for obvious reasons, um, what the Cosmos did for that shining moment in history in America. So, so for me personally, it's just nice to have it where it is. In the past, it kind of grows by the legend as the years go by, and there is no team. Uh, you know, when I leave the door open, if, if something dramatically changes in Major League Soccer where you could do justice to, to the Cosmos, absolutely. But right now, absolutely not. I, 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 I wouldn't want to go out and see uh, a Cosmo team uh, unless it really struck a chord with what we did, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Well, there was an interview recently with Pepe Pinton on ThisIsAmericanSoccer.com where he says MLS can have the name. He's kept an office all this time, says he's not holding out for big money. He's got the trophies and everything. The club still exists. You know him a little bit. Is he nuts? You know what, Ken? Absolutely he's nuts. But you know what? All of us were nuts back there. <laughs> we don't, it was just an unbelievable time. Pepe's nuts, but Pepe is not a bad guy. Pepe the one wish, and I've, I've been to his restaurant, I've been to the museum, I've, I've seen the uh, the memorabilia, the videotape, the jerseys. It, it, it's a shrine that he's built to the cosmos. And, and, and really what Pepe would like, whether it's a team in MLS or not, he wants the history remembered. He would love his museum to be in the National Soccer Hall of Fame. I don't think Pepe needs to see a team. I believe what he says when he says at this point, He'd give the logo and trademark and name to Major League Soccer. Uh, Pe- Pepe is not a bad guy, and he's sort of the one just feeling like he's the only guy on the planet keeping this Cosmo thing alive. So I, I have no ill feelings towards Pepe. I don't think he's trying to be disingenuous or, or trying to make a quick buck. I, I think if somebody said, we're going to take your museum, we're going to keep your DVDs and your tapes and everything from disintegrating because Pepe literally is trying to find money so that the old tapes don't just fade away. You know, it costs money to convert them. Uh, you know, so back to the point, is he crazy? Absolutely. Is he a bad guy? Absolutely not. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. A lot of the old guys come through New York, France, and, and uh, Giorgio is obviously here, and, and Pele's here, you know, once a month, and uh, we have get-togethers in the city, and, and we always call Pepe because we want to have a good time, we want to have a laugh, and none of us, none of us have any ill feelings towards him. Why do you think uh, that that MLS seems to have wanted to distance themselves in large part? Uh, from the memory of the NASL. I mean, some of that is creeping in now with, you know, the earthquakes change, you know, the, the clash becoming the earthquakes 10 years ago, and now Vancouver, Whitecaps coming in, and the Timbers coming in. We're even seeing the Rowdies coming back, the Rowdies name coming back in USL1. But why do you think MLS has purposely tried to distance themselves from a lot of that history? Ken, I, I'm going to draw an analogy to human nature and other sports again. You know, if you ask a, a, a utility infielder, in, in Major League Baseball, who's making $4.5 million, if you ask him who Kurt Flood is, he has no idea. If you're watching the NBA Finals now and you ask most of these players who Julius Irving was and the ABA, they have no idea. So, you know, it's human nature to have short memory when it comes to history. I do think Major League Soccer made a concerted, 
business decision to say, hey, look, we can't compete with the buzz, the excitement. Forget about the business, uh, you know, losing money and the model and everything else. They knew they couldn't compete with how the Tampa Bay Rowdies or the, or the Strikers or the Sounders or the Cosmos captured the imagination uh, uh, of the public back in the 70s. I mean, that league still to this day I think had more buzz and excitement than any team does in Major League Soccer. Now, I think Don Garber has done an unbelievable job. I mean, five years ago, this league was a phone call, Phil Anschultz, away from folding five years ago. So Garber has done a great job. Uh, for whatever reason, they made that decision not to have any connection. They've since revisited it, and I think that's a good idea. Seattle Sounders, you know, prime example uh, you know, Portland, who knows what their name's going to be. Vancouver certainly want to be the Whitecaps. So, you know, look, the name is one thing. At the end of the day, Ken, this is a sophisticated market in the United States, and I don't think you could take it for granted. In, in, certain, in certain markets, they're buying the product from Major League Soccer, and in certain great soccer markets in this country, they're not buying it. So I, I have no... I, I have no ill feelings towards what Major League Soccer did in the beginning. Uh, I'm thrilled that there's a viable league. This league is not going out of business. It is getting better every year. And, and again, what Don Garber has done the last five years is is nothing short of, of miraculous. So, you know, whether the Cosmos or Rowdies or any of the, you know, the old school ones come back, we did what we did. We're all part of the history. We're all proud of it. And, and, and I think all of us, I know all of us, are rooting for Major League Soccer to go on to great heights. We're talking with Shep Messing. Shep, a couple of weeks ago, Professor Julio Maze passed away. I know he wasn't your coach with the Cosmos, but he was a key part of the organization and the soccer scene for many years. Did you know him at all? Oh, absolutely. Uh, knew him, loved him, uh, communicated with his family over the last couple of weeks because although he took over as coach of the Cosmos after I had left, uh, he was with the Cosmos from the day Pele came. Um, so he didn't, he didn't show up later. He came when Pele came. He was obviously, uh, Pele's, uh, mentor and guidance counselor and psychologist and friend and surrogate father. So, uh, I, I loved him, knew him intimately from every day I was there. Um, I have experiences with him off the field that I uh, bring a tear to my eye now. Um, you know, Coca-Cola commercials in, in, in Brazil uh, that the professor arranged, and I got his daughter involved with me. Uh, just a wonderful family, and, and just just uh, I tell other people, Ken, the greatest thing about the prof it was that all of us became his children. I mean, called his wife Mama, and we were all his children. And, and, and this guy who, who, whether it was in front of 80,000 people or five kids in the back uh, of, his, of his yard at a barbecue, he, he had the same passion. He, he was simple, and he was great. And, uh, look, there's not, there's not a moment I don't miss him, and, and, and uh uh, not a day will go by that I'm not thankful uh, he was in my life. Great, great guy. Well, let me ask one one last impolite question. And if this None, is rude, I apologize. No no Why aren't thing. you in the Hall of Fame? Um, I, 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 you know what? I, I, I don't have an answer. I don't know. I, I will tell you what I do know, and I'm, I'm kind of poking fun at myself. So, 
I get an article. I, I, I'm a soccer nut, so I read everything. I look at stuff. I watch games. There's a guy someplace named, I, I don't want to mispronounce his last name, Steve Holroyd. Uh, yeah, Steve Holroyd. He's, yeah, he's a friend of mine. Oh, he seems like a great guy. He is. So and then, over the years, I have at times, you know, emailed. I've never spoken to him. I don't think. I don't think I've ever met him. So Steve sends me this, uh, and, and we use Elias Sports Research, Peter Hurt, does a lot of the stats for, uh, you know, Major League Soccer and, and our broadcast. So Steve sends me this detailed goalkeeper analysis based on really the NHL model for evaluating goalkeeper performance over the years. And I, I read that. I, oh, okay. I, saw, I saw that. It, yeah, it, so I read this whole thing, and I came out looking great. So I yes. told Steve I love him. <laughs> And actually, I, I think there's some merit to it. So do I know why? I, I don't know why. I, I do have a problem. I, I don't care about myself. But, but I do have a problem historically that, that and, and again, look, Hall of Fames are the ultimate subjective, I think, and I don't, I don't think they should be. But, you know, Kyle wrote, to me, made a difference in soccer. Was he the greatest soccer player in the world? No. Does he belong in the Soccer Hall of Fame? To me, he does because he took – soccer during that era, that decade, to a different level. There are not too many American players that can say that. Do I think, you know, Bogicevic is a great player or Beckenbauer? <laughs> Beckenbauer is my friend, my hero, my idol. Does he de- deserve to be in the Hall of Fame more than Kyle Rote or Bob Ridley? I don't think so. <laughs> and I, I told that to friends a month ago in Germany. So I, I don't know. I, I, you know, to answer the question, I, I don't really uh, follow it that closely. Uh, I would love it if I were in. Uh, I think Rigby belongs there more than Arnie Mouser. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't make those decisions, and I'm really not going to lose a lot of sleep about it. All right, a couple more history things for you, Shep, and I'm sure you have great stories about this. Now we're going to go back to 30 years ago this summer. It's 1979, and to this point, the first and only player strike in professional soccer history, and it's important because the collective bargaining agreement between MLS and the Players Association is up for renewal. They're discussing it. In, in, in April of 1979, there was a strike that lasted about a week, and you were one of the guys that uh, did not play in a game because of that. What do you remember about that time and about that situation and how that all went down in your union and everything? Wow, you are bringing me back. And uh, first of all, um we we can you know the evolution of the sport professionally in this country you know the guys in the 99 the 90 world cup in italy you know great credit to them but you know they weren't the first pioneers there are a lot of americans before them who fought hard uh you know to be professional players here so my dad was an attorney um we had started years before uh collaborating or talking uh to the NFLPA because there were, there were simple benefits that, that we didn't have, like insurance and, you know, injury, career-ending injury, just, just simple basic uh, things you would want from your employer. So when, when the strike came about, um, look, at that stage of my career, I was one of the highest-paid Americans, so I, I was not doing it for myself. I was doing it for the, for the future players, and there was no way I, I, I was going to play. And there was great resentment, as I'm sure, you know, unions all over the country and labor, when guys crossed the line and, you know, raised their hand and say, hey, I'll play, I'll go and goal. So, uh, we, you know, we, 
we did not have a strong union, but we had strong American players like uh, Bobby Rigby and Bobby Smith, and I mean the list goes on and on. Who we weren't doing it for ourselves because we were very well paid at that point, but we were doing it, uh, you know, for the basic rights of the players. So, you know, we we always fought the fought. We did what we could. Uh, I don't think we had a strong enough union to do much better, but you know, I, I was never crossing a line. Uh, while we were on strike. And that brings me to the question about the collective bargaining agreement now. Look, the, the world has changed by this economy over the last 12 months, 18 months. Having said that, I'm always a player's guy. So, you know, when this first collective bargaining agreement was signed, there were there were no great sponsors. There were no great expansion fees like Seattle coming in and Toronto uh, revised, uh, renegotiated, great television deal. You know, when when the league and the collective bargaining agreement started, MLS was paying to be on television. Now they have a a multi multi year contract that brings in millions of dollars. So does it? Are they in a good position, the collective bargaining agreement, to to negotiate it now? I think they absolutely are. They have to be cognizant of the fact, though, that the economy is upside down, and and Major League Soccer. Uh, while they lost whatever the number is over the first, you know, five, six years. And not all the cor- the clubs are profitable. So I, I think they're basic things that, that the the union is going to get. I, I'm not privy to any of the negotiations, but they have to be smart about it. You know, this is a league for the first time that we talked about it before. They're not going out of business. They're in business. They're here. And I think if uh, clear heads prevail – they'll work out a good agreement that uh, benefits the league and the players. All right, that the, that mini strike was at the beginning of the 79 season. Now I want you to see if you can remember something that happened at the end of that 79 season. You're playing in Rochester. You guys are playing. Yeah, I'm gonna, uh, let me interrupt you only because okay. your memory is the best. And, <laughs> and that's why the 79 one kind of threw me because the real strike that, that, that nobody ever knew about was in 76. And I had been traded back to the Cosmos. Pele's there. We're playing at Yankee Stadium. All of a sudden, this Cosmos thing is coming alive, and we had no health benefits. So we were in, in the clubhouse coming out. We were supposed to come out of the dugout to play at Yankee Stadium, and we held a strike. My dad was there. You know, as I said before, he's a lawyer. Uh, we, we were with Clive Toy, and Phil Woosman was the commissioner. And we said, you know what, dude, you could do whatever you want with Pele, but he, he needs 10 other players to go on the field with him. And, and we had a strike, the Cosmos did, in the bowels of Yankee Stadium uh, before, before coming out on the field. And uh, so I'll get back to your, you know, I interrupted you, but, you know, we were always fighting for basic things. And, and look, Pele deserves everything he gets and, and, and is the greatest guy in the world and my hero. But, you know, we felt, we're going on the same field. We're getting paid 75 bucks a game, and we don't have insurance if we break a leg. So those are basic uh, employee rights that you've got to fight for. I'm guessing that, you know, this I'd never heard that story, Chef. That's awesome. Uh, it's like the NBA players. They struck before an All-Star game once, like the night of the game. So what came of that? I, I, I'm guessing you got something out of the deal, right? Yeah, we got, we got you know, Clive Toy. uh you know, president of the team, the guy who signed Pelé, great, great guy, you know, ended up uh, with the Chicago Sting in Toronto, but, but he agreed with us. And, and, and literally, 
they delayed the game 45 minutes while they got uh, an umbrella insurance policy to cover all the players. That that was the measure. You know that that's all we were looking for. We didn't want to go on the field and break a leg and, and be done. So Clive delayed the game 45 minutes, uh, called one uh, an insurance broker, and uh, and got everybody covered for the season. All right, back to the original question. Now it's the last game of the '79 season. You're in Rochester. You're playing New England. Yeah. There was a there was a story that came out that said that uh, Kevin Keelan, the other goalkeeper, had suggested through one of the players, uh, Mike Stojanovic, that you both give up goals because back in those days it would help your both your team's chances of getting in the playoffs because they had that kind of Byzantine bonus point system. Did that really happen? You're the best, Ken. You're the best. Yeah, I, absolutely, it happened. Uh, I, I'll tell you what happened and when it what. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And, and so, again, do I know whether Kevin actually said that to a player on his team? I don't know. If you knew Stojanovic, you talk about crazy. You know, he, he was a big-time striker for us. Uh, his English was not great. He, he was a character, and there's no question that he came to me and, and repeated just what you said. Kevin Keelan said, you give a goal, they'll give a goal. We each get that extra bonus point. We're each in the playoffs. I said, get the f*** out of here. But he's shaking my shoulders. So no, 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 no. Just give a goal. They'll give us a goal. We're both in the playoffs. And that was it. This was this was during the run of play. You know, it wasn't halftime. It was a corner kick, and Stojanovic, it was corner kick against us. So Stojanovic was back in our penalty area talking to me. And and I basically, you know, just shoved him away and said, get the f*** out of here. And, and that was it. And and I reported it. I, w- I was wrong not to have reported it and gotten in trouble for it because, I, you know, I didn't say anything until a reporter at another game, I think it was a week later, uh, was talking to me about it. And, and what I was doing was ranting about the playoff system where it's, you know, that's bullshit. You know, Stojanovich came up to me and said and repeated the story. So I got, I got yanked down to the league office and, you know, went through all the interviews and I don't even know what the outcome was, whether I got fined or, uh, you know, a minimal fine, but I was pointing out the, the potential for it you know, with that system of somebody collaborating to get a result. But Stojanovic did did come to me and ask me to give a goal. Well, to quote absent friends, that's why he's here, because of segments <laughs> like this with Shep Messing. Shep, always a pleasure. Don't be a stranger. You got it, guys. That's the one and only Shep Messing. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We're back next week with an all-new show. We'll talk with soccer historian Roger Alloway about his new book, Corner Offices and Corner Kicks, comparative history of two of the biggest names in the history of the game in this country, Bethlehem Steel FC and the New York Cosmos. Upcoming guests include this year's Hall of Famers, Joy Fawcett and Jeff Agus, and many more. Don't forget, go to iTunes and subscribe to Forward the Back and send us your emails at podcast at ken.com. For Dan Loney, I'm Ken Tomash. Until next time. Okay, put down the cheeseburger and do it. This has been Forward the Back. Well, there it is, a match that had everything. And one that certainly lived up to its promise. It's only a pity that somebody usually has to lose. But there's always another day, another great match to be drawn, lost, or won, when we'll join you again.